Well, good morning again, Rivertown Community Church. Hey, it's so good to be with you guys. I've been taking several, several weeks off, and uh, we've had some other guest communicators come in. So it's just great to be on the stage again and talking to all of you that I love so much as part of the Rivertown Community Church family. If this is the first time you're here today, man, we are so glad that you're here. And I just want to say a shout out to Bluntstown, Chipley, Wakala, and uh, Mariana. Thank you so much for being a part of this series. I mean, this is absolutely amazing what God has been doing. If you hadn't been here for the last two weeks, you know that Matt Johnson has done an amazing job of kicking this off. So if you haven't heard the last two weeks, make sure you go online. You can watch on our website or on our app. But today, we are in week three of our series entitled Breakthrough. And in this series, basically what we're doing is we're asking a question that is very personal to all of us because we've all been there. And unfortunately, we're all going to be there again at some point in our life. So here's the question that we've been asking during this series, and that is this. What do you do when your dreams don't come true? Because the truth is, we've all had dreams that didn't come true. In fact, some of them didn't come true because we were just very unrealistic about them. I mean, we, we believe things that were not right. We believe things about ourselves, and, and we even maybe lied to ourselves a little bit. We were just very unrealistic about them. Some of them didn't come true because we self-sabotages ourselves by, by some choices and by some decisions that we've made. And truthfully, um, for some of you, there are probably some dreams that you're glad didn't come true, right? Remember those, like that crush that you had on that guy or that girl in high school, and then you saw them at the class reunion 10, 20, 30 years later, and you're like, thank God that dream didn't come true, you know? I'm like, we've all had those kind of dreams that we're glad didn't come true, right? But on the serious side, we've also had some broken dreams, right? And broken dreams are a lot more painful and a lot more serious. And the reason that broken dreams are so more, much painful, so much more painful, and they're so much more serious, is because broken dreams, don't miss this, they're so personal. See, the reason they're so personal to us is because we saw that broken dream as a path. We, we saw it as a path to becoming or experiencing or achieving something that really mattered deeply to us in our life. In fact, one of the things I've learned over the years is this, is the more personal a dream is, the more painful it is when it doesn't come true. In fact... One of the things I've also discovered just being a pastor now for 25 years is that there's nothing more personal and more painful than broken dreams and things like our marriages, in our families, with our children. See, see, think about it this. Dreams that don't come true in these areas of our marriage, our, our family, our children, I mean, whether it was because of a decision or a choice that you made, or maybe it was because of their choice or their decision, I mean, it is painful. In fact, the truth is, it can be devastating to our lives, can it? If you've ever experienced a broken dream in a marriage or in your family with your children, you know it can be so painful that it is devastating. And that's why it's so important for us to, again, look at this question this week. What do you do when your dreams don't come true? Because, see, throughout this series, we've been unpacking answers to this question, and, and we've been looking at answers to this question from the life of David, 
Because see, in spite of all of David's successes in life, in in spite of the fact that he was called by God, a man after God's own heart, David dealt with broken dream after broken dream after broken dream. And in fact, over the last few weeks, as as Matt shared with us, I mean, we've seen him through his broken dreams. We've seen him panic. I mean, we've seen him lose faith. We, we may, we've seen him make decisions that not only cost him dearly, but it costs the people around him dearly. But here's the good news this morning. Through all of those broken dreams and through all of those lessons that David went through, David learned some incredibly powerful life, life lessons. In fact, he learned the lesson like we talked about in the week one, and that is this. The God who brought you to this point in your life will bring you through this point in your life. And then last week, we learned the value of trusting God even when life falls apart. But you know, it's one thing to see this lived out in somebody else's life, and and it's another thing completely and entirely for us to live this out in ourselves when you see some of your most personal dreams dying right before your eyes. Which is why today, we wanna look at one of the most painful times that David ever experienced in his life, it it literally resulted in the death of one of his deepest heartfelt dreams. And here's what makes this story so practical for us on this Father's Day. This is a story about David and his relationship with his children. And while there's a transferable principle for those of you who are going, well, I'm not a parent yet, or I'm not a father, I'm not a mother, that kind of thing, this principle is transferable, this relationship principle is transferable no matter what kind of relationship you're in. But today, if if you're on one of our campuses and, and you're a father and you're a mother, we encourage you to lean into this lesson because the truth is this, if you can learn what David discovered and what David did through what we will call his greatest relational tragedy with his children, I can tell you, parents, it will save you so much heartache. Now, the story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 15. That's in the Old Testament. You can follow along on the screen here, or you can find it in the worship guide that you received inside. We, gave, we put these uh, verses in there for you as well. But the story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 15, and the story takes place after David has been king for many years. And David at this point, he's older. I mean, life's fairly good for him. He's got prosperity. The country is now at peace. It's no longer at war. And David has a lot of influence. And David has a lot of power. And he thinks things are kind of just like going well at this point. But unknown to him, it's all about to unravel because of turmoil that's about to happen in his family and in his relationship with his children. So let me kind of give you some backstory. So David's firstborn son is called Amnon, okay? And Amnon, being the firstborn son, he's in line to be the next king. But things go south in David's family when Amnon becomes attracted to his half-sister, Tamar. Now, even in those days, marrying your half-sister was pretty much frowned on, okay? So um, Amnon, he comes up with this plan to get what he wants from his sister, or his half-sister, Tamar. And so basically, long story short, he pretends that he's sick. He requests that his half-sister, Tamar, come and take care of him. And when she comes to his house to take care of him, 
she comes into his room and he rapes her. And then after he rapes her, he's disgusted with her and Amnon has Tamar thrown out of his house. And as you can imagine, Tamar is absolutely devastated. And so she goes and she tells her brother Absalom. And Absalom is one of David's sons. And when he hears about this, I mean, he is absolutely furious. And so he tells Tamar, he says, listen, you come live with me and I'll take care of you. Well, all of this happens and the word gets back to David that Amnon has raped Tamar and David is absolutely furious. As, I, mean, I mean, what dad wouldn't be? So David, basically seeing that his family is just kind of headed for disaster, he, he does what a lot of us dads would do in this situation. You know, your chest kind of gets tight and your fist, fists start kind of clenching and, and that dad tone comes to your voice. But here's what's weird about this. David does absolutely nothing. Now, now, we don't know if he didn't act because Amnon was in line to be the next king or if he's just ignoring this tough situation in his family, but David never engages. He stays distant. And in doing so, he makes this horrible, really bad choice for his family. So Absalom, I mean, he's watching all of this, and he's thinking, man, this is so wrong. I am not going to let Amnon get away with this. I mean, if dad won't do something, then I'll do something. And here's what happened. For two years, Absalom, he waits and he plots his revenge. How is he going to bring revenge for Tamar? Well, when Absalom has this all planned put together, he, he calls his, he invites his father, King David, and all of his father's sons and daughters to this party that he puts together. But for some reason, in the last moment, David decides he wasn't going to go. But when the party is in full swing, Absalom, he murders Amnon in front of everybody. It was his way to publicly make right the rape of his sister, Tamar. And then Absalom, after he does this, he flees to a region called Geshur, which is located in modern Syria. Now, word, just understand this, word gets back to David that night, the night that it happened. So now David has another decision to make about his family. I mean, his firstborn son has been murdered by another son that he loves. So what do you do? Do you arrest Absalom? Do you take his life too? So once again, David has a decision to make. And what's weird again is this. David decides that he's going to stay distant. And so for three years, David is in Jerusalem. After this happens, this murder of his son by another son, David is in Jerusalem, and Absalom is hiding out in a neighboring country of Geshur. But here's the thing. If you read the story, you discover that during those three years, we're told that Absalom truly missed his father David, and David truly misses his son Absalom. And so finally, because David misses his son so much, he's convinced by some people around him to send for Absalom to come home, which is finally looks like it's going to be like the, the restoring of this relationship. So Absalom, he comes back to Jerusalem thinking that he's going to get to be with his dad again. But just as it seems that David is kind of like leaning into rebuilding this family that's all broken up and destroyed, David makes another unusual call and he refuses to see Absalom when he gets back to Jerusalem. 
And it takes two more years and a lot of effort. And Absalom finally gets to see David. And they have this conversation, but for some reason, David is hesitant to reconnect. And then when Absalom leaves from that conversation, it's kind of like the last time that they really saw each other. And as you can imagine, Absalom's resentment has been building toward his father, not only for ignoring what happened to Tamar, but also for ignoring him. And so Absalom, he starts plotting his revenge. And what he does is he begins sitting at the gate of Jerusalem, and he kind of becomes a he kind of creates his own position as a, as a judge and as an advisor to the people. So before the people would get to David, Absalom would intercept them. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Because Absalom was probably the most like David of all of David's sons. I mean, he was just like a natural leader and people just gravitated to David. So when people came to, down, to town to see David for an issue, oh, Absalom, he would intercept them and then he would just like take care of their issue himself and man, he would just treat them so well. And here's what happened. Over a period of time, Absalom began to win the heart and the admiration of the people and then when Absalom saw that he had the trust and he had the admiration of the people, he enacted his plot to overthrow his father, David. And that's where we're going to pick up in the story in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 7. Notice what it says. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, literally he kind of like sent a message to the king to get permission to do this. He says, let me go to Hebron. Hebron was his dad, David. Let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow that I made to the Lord. Here's what he goes on the tells. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord will take me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Now, David thinks all this is sincere. But this is all part of the plot of Absalom. Notice what he goes on, he says. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribe. It's kind of like some of you kind of do all your like secret Facebook messaging, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, stirring up stuff. So that's kind of what Absalom's doing here. He's like, he sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Now, you got to understand the geography here. So Hebron is about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's here, Hebron's here. So basically, Absalom's plan is this. I'm going to go down to Hebron. I'm going to form my army. I'm going to form my following. And then what we're going to do is we're going to march from Hebron to Jerusalem. And we're going to gather people as we go along the way. And that's kind of what he does. Notice this. He says, 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests. So you can see Absalom's manipulating this. And quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. So these guests that Absalom invited, I mean, he knows that they'll side with him, but he doesn't tell them fully what he's up to because he wants to make sure that his little plot doesn't get out and King David find out about it. So here's what happens. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, to come from Gilroy, his hometown. Now, Ahithophel, you got to understand this guy. He was David's counselor. He was David's chief advisor. So Absalom makes contact with him, 
and he wins him over to his side. And he plans to use Ahithophel's insight and understanding and knowledge about David to figure out how best to defeat and destroy his father. And scripture goes on. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom following kept on increasing. And then there is this statement, and this is like the turning point. Don't miss this. A messenger came and told David, the heart of the people of Israel are with Absalom. And I'm telling you folks, this statement here in verse 13, it is so significant because of this reason. When David hears this statement, the heart of the people of Israel are with Absalom, David knew that his dream to reconnect, to restore his family, to reconnect with Absalom, that dream, it had died. It had completely died. Now, some of you have been here. You know exactly what David is feeling at this point. For for some of you, you're right here right now in your life with a child. Some of you are right here right now with with a spouse. I mean, maybe your spouse walked in this week or the week before or the week before, a month ago or three months ago, and and they handed you divorce papers. and, And you knew at that point in time, it's over. It's over. I mean, you'd hope that it wouldn't be that way, but when they hand you those divorce papers to sign, you knew the dream had died. Or maybe it was when they moved out of the house, and you didn't want them to, but they, they decided they were going to move out, and, and they wanted to live separate for a while, and, and, you, and you said some things, and they said some things, and now you're going your separate ways, and you're wondering if you'll ever be able to be around them again. For some of you, you're right here right now in your marriage, your spouse. Others of you, you're there with a child. I mean, the police showed up at your house, they called you, and they told you that your teenager, your young adult son, young adult daughter has been arrested. And when they told you what the charges were, you're going, and you knew in that moment all your dreams for that child, they they were gone. Or maybe for whatever reason, your young adult son or daughter, they they chose to just totally reject you. Maybe your middle-aged son or daughter. For some reason, they, they, they just, for whatever reason, they decided in this season, we're done with you. We're completely cutting you out of our life. And all your dreams of doing life together as a family with your grandchildren, now they're all gone. And that's what David felt in this moment when he heard this statement. The heart of the people of Israel with Absalom. And what David felt in this moment, I mean, think about this, as he knows that his son has one goal in this season, and his one goal in this season is to hurt his father and destroy his father as much as he possibly can. What's interesting is David's response in this moment. I mean, when he's got this son who's coming against him to hurt him as deeply as he could. I mean, it's just amazing to see David's response. In fact, if we had started this series with David's response, I mean, you you wouldn't believe that anybody would respond this way. You go, how could David even respond this way? Because even great parents don't respond this way. But here's the good news. 
See, over the years, David learned so many lessons from his past mistakes, some that we looked at over the past two, past two weeks, and now he shows us what it looks like to practically trust God in the middle of the pain of a broken dream, when the pain of a broken dream is at the greatest point that you will ever experience in your life, because I don't care who you are, I mean, there is almost no greater parent pain for a parent than to be rejected by a child. In fact, I want you to look at David's response. Here's his response. Then David said to all of his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. He goes, we must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. And the king's officials, they're kind of surprised by this. Notice their answer. Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. They're kind of like saying, David, you you got all the power. You got the position. Why are we running? The king set out with his entire household following him. Please don't miss this. This is so important. Back to our question. What do you do when your dreams don't come true? Especially with your children especially with your children. And David makes a choice that absolutely shocked everyone around him. I mean, he's literally saying, listen, gather up everybody that's loyal to me and everybody that serves me and everybody who's part of my household. We're leaving, we're fleeing. And this was really like David's way of saying, listen, I'm not gonna try to take matters in my own hands. I'm not gonna defend myself and I'm not gonna try to control this and manipulate the outcome of this. I'm not gonna position myself to win or try to protect myself because David is kind of like David is saying in this statement, he's like, man, when I was younger, I tried that. Remember that by everybody he's saying to the people around him? You remember I tried that. And what I learned is this, that nobody wins when you position yourself to win. And you know, at first glance, this could look like another passive move on David's part, just like his response to when Tamar was raped and, and when Absalom killed his brother. But, but this time, it's not a passive response. David responds this way, and we're going to see why in just a moment, because David responds this way because he is choosing in this moment to put his total faith in God, not in his ability to work this out. So David, what he does is he packs up everyone that is loyal to him, that's part of his household, and they flee the city. And notice what happens beginning in verse 23. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Now here it gets interesting. Zadok was there too. Now Zadok was the high priest. And all the Levites, that's all the other priests, who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Now don't miss this Ark of the Covenant thing. Because see, the Israelites, I mean, the Ark of the Covenant, it meant everything to them. They believed that it represented the presence of God, the epicenter of the presence of God. In other words, like you couldn't get closer to God than when you were with the Ark of the Covenant. So Zadok, he thinks, we're taking the Ark of the Covenant with us. I mean, David's in the ride, and we want to make sure that God is with us through all this. And he's like, if we have a battle, we want to make sure that God is with us, and we win the battle, which makes David's next decision so strange. Notice what he says next. Then the king, literally King David, said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city, literally back to Jerusalem. And I'm sure that Zadok's going, what? Why in the world would you leave the ark of the covenant with Absalom? 
We've got to take this ark. I mean, it, it basically guarantees that the presence of God is going to be with us and we'll win any battle or any conflict that we might have with Absalom. And David goes, no, take it back in the city because I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to try to manipulate the outcome. I'm not going to try to manipulate God into doing what I want him to do. And then what David says next, I mean, it's just so powerful. Because if we could learn to respond to broken dreams with this attitude, I promise you, it would be so life-changing for every one of us. Here's what David says. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, literally he's saying, if it's God's will, he will bring me back and let me see it referring to Jerusalem, and his dwelling place, referring to the Ark of the Covenant and the temple again. He says, if it's God's will, then that's what God's going to do. And then the next statement he says, but if he says, I am not pleased with you, which is David's way of saying, if it's not God's will, because he's not saying that God doesn't like him, he's just saying, if it's not God's will, he says, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. I mean, folks, that's an unbelievable statement when you think about who's saying this. I mean, this is the king of the country. This is guy, the guy that has all the power at his fingertips. And he's saying, I'm not going to try to manipulate the outcome of the, this situation for my benefit. It's like David saying, just because my dream is dying doesn't mean that my faith and my trust in God is dying. I'm trusting God and I'm leaving the outcome in his hands. I'm trusting God to handle this the way that he wants to handle it. So that takes us back to our question. What do you do when your dreams don't come through? What do you do? Here's what we learn from David when your dreams die and they don't come through, even your dream of having a relationship with that child that has set out to hurt you and destroy you, here's what you do. You trust God and you leave the outcome in his hands. That's what you do. You trust God with the outcome and you don't try to maneuver the outcome on your own. Which takes us to an even bigger question. For each one of us personally, and that is this. Do you trust God and leave the outcome to him when your most personal dreams are dying? Or, or is your faith in God, is it, is it literally based on whether he fulfills your dreams or not? Listen, if you only trust God to the extent that he does what you want him to do, you really don't have a relationship with God, and you really don't have trust in God. You've only created like a contractual relationship or a contractual obligation that you've kind of handed to God and say, God, I expect you to meet my expectations. And see, when you do that with God, basically all it takes is one disappointment, one tragedy, one heartbreak moment, one broken dream, and you lose faith, and trust in God completely. But when you trust God and you leave the outcome in his hands, man, that's when you know that you love God for who he is and not just what he does for you. Not when he just brings your dreams through. So here's a question. What does that look like for each of you? 
How do you trust God and leave the outcome in his hands? I mean, even when that child that you so deeply love rejects you and has nothing to do with you anymore, and they really just want to hurt you as deeply as they can, or how do you trust God and leave the outcome in your hands when the relationship that you, you thought it was so strong, I mean, that friendship, it just suddenly ends and they don't want anything to do with you anymore? Or how do you trust God when you lose someone that you love unexpectedly? How do you trust God and leave the outcome in his hands when you discover that this person that you spent years with loving and being married to, they've had an affair on you and they say they don't love you anymore? Or how do you trust God and leave the outcome in his hands when that job, that career that you have, you just feel like they've done nothing but lie to you and now you're stuck and, and your career's going nowhere. Here's what you do. And I'm not saying this is going to be natural and I'm not saying this is going to be easy. But you do what David did in this situation. And I'm going to tell you, dads, listen, I'm with you. This is not natural for us as men. What you do in these moments See, we guys, we're fix-it kind of guys. We want to get in there and fix it. What's the problem? Let's fix this thing and make everything right. So, so what do you do? Here's what you do. You obey your way through the pain and do the next right thing. You, you obey your way through the pain and do the next right thing. Now, I learned this principle from watching my dad. See, I... I was blessed to have a dad that did this for me, a dad that modeled this principle of obey your way through the pain and do the next right thing. I mean, I watched my dad handle broken dream after broken dream after broken dream. I watched him just obey his way through the pain and do the next right thing. Now, here's the thing that was interesting. My, my, my dad, see, he never saw this modeled for him. Some of you have heard my story of my dad, my granddad, my granddad. He never stepped his foot in a church until he was 64 years age. Never, not, not for a funeral, not for a wedding. Church just totally meant nothing to him. It was totally irrelevant. My dad was the same way until he was 20, and he wanted to marry my mom, so he started going to church to kind of chase her down. But anyhow, and then so. <clears throat> so my dad never saw this. So when, when his family would hit pain, they would just create more dysfunction. See, that, that's what happens when you don't obey your way through the pain and do the next right thing. See, when, when, you, when you hit pain in a family and you don't obey your way through the pain and do the next right thing and following God, you just create more and more dysfunction. And, and my dad's family was so dysfunctional. I mean, some of you will come to me sometimes and go, I need to tell you the story and it's going to surprise you. And I go, oh, no, you don't understand. My dad's family was a Smith family. There's nothing you're going to surprise me about. And the reason they had the last names of Smiths because they were such outlaws, they had to change their name or they'd all been in jail. But the bottom line is, it was like my dad at age 20 decided he was going to follow God. And, and so he modeled this. And I'm going to tell you something. Because he modeled it, it totally changed the trajectory of our family. So instead of building more and more dysfunction into the family every generation, it began to remove dysfunction. Because that's what this does. And here's the truth for many of you today. You, you never saw this modeled out for you. You've never seen this lived out. I mean, every time pain came in your family, you just added more dysfunction because you didn't obey your way through the pain and you didn't do the next right thing. 
And here's the truth, men, women, students, you, you can choose to live this out and I promise you it will begin to change the trajectory of your family. This is what trust looks like in God. Obey your way through the pain and do the next right thing. And had I not seen that model, I promise you, I would not have lasted and survived as a pastor, especially a pastor who, who, who now is pastoring a church. I never thought it would be like, we have five locations now, you know? You obey your way through the pain and do the next right thing. You don't worry about the outcome. You don't worry about what's going to happen next year at all the holidays. You don't worry about what's going to happen next month when that birthday kind of thing rolls around or next week or even the next day. You just do the next right thing that's in front of you and you trust that if you obey God, I mean, he'll lead you to where you need to be just like David is doing in this moment. And for some of you to obey your way through the pain and do the next right thing, for some of you, it's to choose forgiveness today over anger. And so you're sitting there going, hey, I tried that forgiveness thing one time, and it lasted about 10 minutes. And I was angry again. So here's what you do. You choose forgiveness again and again and again and again, and you keep doing the right thing, and you keep choosing forgiveness till you feel that in your soul. For some of you, obeying your way through the pain means you quit defending yourself. It's like you're on social media always defending yourself. Instead of just like blowing up at everybody through that screen, you choose not to respond in anger and defend yourself anymore. And like maybe some of you are being attacked at work or maybe you feel like you're being attacked in your marriage or you're being attacked by your children. Or, and every fiber in your being wants to defend itself. You want to attack back. But David shows us, no, 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 no. You, you do what is right. You, you obey your way through the pain and do the next right thing. You let the revenge to God. Maybe for some of you, it's like you just need to step out of all this disappointment that you've experienced in this broken dream, and, and you invest yourself in someone over here who needs some love. Maybe for others of you, the way that you obey your way through the pain and do the next right thing is you do something you haven't done in years tomorrow morning. You get up and you open your Bible and say, God, speak to me from your word, because I've been so angry at you. I've never wanted to open this thing for a long time. And then you pray, saying, God, I need your help today, even though you don't feel like it, because you're so angry at God. See, this is what trusting God looks like when your dreams die. You obey your way through the pain, and you do the next right thing. And by doing that, you're saying, God, I don't understand why. I don't like it, but I'm still going to follow you. I'm still going to believe you. I'm still going I'm, I'm to trust you and submit to you. See, that's what it looks like to trust God and leave the outcome into his hands. In fact, that's exactly what David does in this situation. And, and as we kind of fast forward in this story, I mean, remember, David's got everything at his disposal, but he leaves the city, and he launches out into the forest, and and Absalom, his men, they, they go in and they take control of Jerusalem. And then Absalom does some things in Jerusalem to humiliate his dad. I mean, they're, they're so offensive. And he did them in public. And you'd have to read the story for yourself because it's something we wouldn't even say in church. But he does it all to humiliate and hurt his father. And then Absalom, he heads out and he, he's going to try to destroy David. And a battle occurs between some of David's men and Absalom. And David thinks that that might could happen, and so he instructs his, his men, and people says, if that happens, if there's a conflict that happens, do not kill Absalom. Do, don't kill him. But this story doesn't end happily because Absalom is killed. And David's dream of reconciling with his son Absalom, it's over 
And even though David has won, and now David's back in Jerusalem, and he's there near the Ark of the Covenant, I mean, he's devastated that he's lost another son. But you know what's interesting? None of this shakes his faith in trusting God. He just keeps obeying God through the pain. In fact, as a matter of fact, some years later, when he's about to hand the torch off or the baton off to his son Solomon, he's on the verge of death, he calls Solomon to his bedside. And David tells Solomon, he says, listen, you you need to understand this incredible truth as you become the next king, Solomon. As you face broken dreams, you can trust God and leave the outcome to him. So on his deathbed, here's what he tells his son Solomon. Here's what he says. He says, I'm about to go the way of the earth, he said. So be strong. Act like a man. And this is what men do. You obey your way through the pain. And you do the next right thing. That's what David's saying. So be strong. Act like a man. And observe what the Lord your God requires. And then he says, walk in obedience. Obey your way through the pain. And keep his decrees. Do the next right thing. His laws and his regulations is written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. So David is basically saying to Solomon, he says, son, listen, obey your way through the pain. And do the next right thing, even when you don't feel like doing the next right thing. In spite of so many dreams dying, I mean, David's last words to Solomon were, listen, I know this works. I know it works. God always knows best. So don't panic when your dreams die. Don't run away from God. Don't resist God. Don't rebel against God. You just obey your way through the pain and do the next right thing. You trust God and you leave the outcome. In his hands. And David says, when you do that, that's when you experience a breakthrough that you never imagined that you would experience. And that's what God wants for every one of you. You let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, today I pray that um, you'll give us all the faith to trust you when those dreams that we absolutely I mean, they are so personal to us, we, we see them dying in front of us. Give us the faith to trust you. And I pray that you'll give us the humility to follow you. Because it takes humility not to try to be God on our own and fix life ourselves. And So I pray that you'll give us the humility. And then God, will you give us the strength to obey you and do the next right thing? no matter what comes our way. God, there are some of us that we're right in the middle of that, and man, the pain is so great, and the thought of not bringing revenge or retaliating or trying to manipulate or control and just to trust you, it just is almost overwhelming. But that's what we're choosing this morning is to say we're gonna obey our way through the pain, and we're gonna do the next right thing because we're gonna trust you and let the outcome in your hands. And God, I wanna thank you that as... um, David told his son Solomon, if you do this, then you can begin to prosper again. God, if we begin to do this, that's when we can begin to experience breakthroughs from those broken dreams that we've experienced in our lives. Thank you, God, for what we're learning together on this journey together through the life of David. Help us to apply it starting today.